Emmanuel, please do take your Bibles now and turn them to the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, the Gospel according to Luke, the only Gospel we have not yet preached through, but Lord willing, which we will go through over the next few, well, let's face it, years. Um, but we'll begin this morning uh, with, a, with a word of introduction. So Luke uh, chapter 1. Reading in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, uh, it is our great desire to have certainty regarding the things that we have been taught. And so we pray that as we begin this journey through the gospel according to Luke, that you would open our eyes to behold afresh the wonders of the gospel as they are manifest in our Lord Jesus. We pray now that as we come to think about this gospel as a whole, that you would help us not simply to store up information, but to cultivate an even deeper love for Scripture that reveals our Savior. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as I said uh, this morning, we will begin a series that, Lord willing, will take us all the way through this third gospel, uh, the gospel according to Luke. And as has really been our habit over the years, uh, we're going to begin this new series by thinking about the book as a whole. And the reason we do that is, as you know, one of our great interpretive principles, uh, context is king. Uh, if we are to properly understand God's Word, then it is vital that we understand that Word in its proper context. And it's vital that we do that in its historical context, uh, understanding uh, what is going on in the world around us as this writer sits down to, to write his gospel. Uh, but it's also important that we understand the context of its place within the unfolding story of redemption. You know that the Bible is not just a collection uh, of randomly compiled books. Uh, sometimes that, that might be how you think of it. Sometimes that might be how you, how you read it. We, we pick from here. We select from there. And, and while I think it's a great thing for us to use a multi-chapter reading plan, I, I do it. I use the McShane plan for chapters every day. Sometimes, though, when you're reading four different chapters from four different places in the Bible, it can all just seem a little choppy. But we know, again, another interpretive principle is that it's not choppy. The whole Bible is one story that moves from Genesis 3.15 in that precious first promise that God in His mercy and grace would not leave humanity to dwell and languish in their sin or suffer the death of their sin, but that He promises to bring a Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, who would definitively defeat evil and bring the people of God 
into a restored relationship with God. And the whole of Scripture is an unfolding story that moves from that point, building on that first promise, expanding it, and, and, uh, and revealing it to us. You've heard this. I don't think I've used this for a while. But I like to think of the story of redemption. Uh, I saw this from a, a science teacher I had in high school. Uh, I think of rede- the story of your Bible is like a fly on a yardstick in a fog. Like a fly on a yardstick in a fog. And in Genesis 3.15, there he is. The fall has come and it is a pea super. And he cannot see his little fly-like hand in front of his face. He has no idea where the story is going. But then with Genesis 3.15, he's promised that a redeemer will come. And the fog lifts maybe an inch. And it's enough to tell him that there's a story here. That this is not the end, but something else is coming. And with every successive story in Scripture, with every covenant that's made, with every progression amongst the people of God, it unfolds and that fog lifts and it lifts and it lifts and it lifts and you see further and further and further down the line. All this to say, whenever we come to a book in the Bible, it's important to know where we are on that yardstick. To know where we are, not just geopolitically and what's going on around, though that is important and will often impact that story. It is important that we understand where we are in the unfolding story of redemption, what has come before and what is yet to come. And so it's important as we begin, look, that we try to get a handle on this. And the first question I think we need to ask is, why the gospel of Luke? And after all, we have three other Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. So why, why do we have this one? Well, we could think of it, I think, in terms of veracity. Remember, in the the first century, not everyone was convinced about the story that the Christians were telling. Remember how Paul describes it, 1 Corinthians says it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But it is not as if the, the disciples come out of the upper room having beheld the risen Christ. Or it's not as if the disciples go out from Jerusalem having beheld Christ ascending into heaven and they go out into the world and they tell the world of Jesus. And it's, it's not that the whole world suddenly says, wow, we've been waiting for this. Right? The reception that those early Christians get is one of imprisonment. It's one of beating. It's one of ridicule. It's one even of execution. Right? To the Jews, Jesus just wasn't, the Jesus that the, that the church was speaking of just simply did not fit the category of the Messiah. They were looking for a, a military leader, a, a political figure who was going to come and, and reclaim Canaan as the promised land. He was going to come and, and rout the Romans. He was going to come and, and re heaven on earth, the kingdom of God within the boundaries of Palestine. And the Jesus born in Bethlehem, 
raised in Nazareth, crucified in Jerusalem. It just didn't fit their categories. It was a stumbling block to them. They could not get past it. To the Gentiles, to the Romans, the notions of a, a crucified God, well, it was, it was frankly absurd, right? To their minds filled with the heroics of classical myths, everything that the Christians were telling seemed so weak and pathetic. And so we could say that the four Gospels work together to verify the story that the Christians are telling. What is it that Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us? A principle that has continued on throughout the courts of justice that, that two or three witnesses are required to establish the truth around an accusation. So here are four witnesses standing shoulder to shoulder, bearing testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, bearing testimony to the proclamation of the church that in Jesus Christ, all of the redemptive promises that had been made in the Old Testament have come true. That in and through Jesus Christ, the true and greater kingdom of God, to which the whole Old Testament pointed, has finally come to fulfillment. To the Jews, these gospels say, look, descendant of Abraham, see the one who was before Abraham was. See your messianic king, humble yourself before him in faith and repentance and enjoy the blessings of heaven that he brings for you. To the Gentiles, these gospels say, See, Roman, a glorious God, the most glorious God. See, if we could put it this way, see the most heroic God, who unlike your little idols is not selfish and self-centered, who isn't always getting his feelings hurt or stumbling over his own powers, but see a God who is mighty and benevolent, who is love embodied, and who in his love has brought a redemption, not just for a little parish, not just for a little region of this earth, but for the whole of the earth. These gospels stand shoulder to shoulder, bearing faithful witness to Jew and Gentile that in Jesus Christ there is redemption to be found that what the Christians are saying is true. But of course, these are not simply, quote-unquote, evangelistic books. Uh, these books are here to disciple us and to bring us along in our Christianity. These Gospels, with their different perspectives and even their different material, fill out our understanding of Jesus Christ. They work together and complement one another to give us a full-orbed grasp on the wonders of His person and work. And each of these four Gospels bring their own unique contribution to how we are to understand the life and ministry of Jesus. Each of these Gospels has its own emphasis. Each of these Gospels written by the human author to fulfill a particular purpose, a particular need that he felt had to be addressed 
within his community. So, for example, the gospel according to Mark, in all likelihood, the first of the four gospels written. It's written in a tremendously fast-paced way, right? As you've read it, you've probably noticed it. What's Mark's favorite word? Immediately. Everything in Mark's gospel is happening immediately. He tells us about Jesus over here, and then immediately Jesus is now over here. And immediately then Jesus has turned over here, and immediately Jesus moves over there. There's a breathlessness about the way that, that Mark writes his gospel, suddenly shifting from scene to scene. And, and what Mark is doing is he wants to give us a very quick introduction to, to Jesus. It's almost as if he wants to captivate his readers and, and just sweep them along with him as he shows them the, the ministry of, of Christ. And what's the emphasis of Mark's gospel? Well, we look at how he's weighted it. And here's the story of Jesus' life, but the last third of the gospel concerns one week in Jerusalem. It's clear that that Mark's emphasis is on showing his readers particularly the atoning work of Christ. He wants to show his readers initially in all likelihood, a predominantly Jewish audience, he wants to show them in the first two-thirds that that the anticipated kingdom of God has arrived with the arrival of Jesus. And then specifically in the last third, he wants to bring it all down to land. He wants to bring the plain down to land and show them that that kingdom was established, not through military might and conquering, but through Christ's atoning death on the cross. I'd be going too far to say that Mark's gospel is a, a tract, but it's, it's in that vein. He wants to quickly disseminate this good news. He wants to tell those first century Jews that all of the Old Testament promises have come to fulfillment in Christ. Matthew's gospel is similar. It seems tremendously similar to Mark, so much so that we think Matthew used Mark as his template for his gospel. But of course, it's more expansive and it's more thorough in its presentation of Jesus. Unlike Mark, Matthew will bring us right back to the beginning, and he will emphasize the extraordinary incarnation of Jesus. He'll explain the wonder of the virgin birth to us. And from there, Matthew will show us, like Mark, that the kingdom of God has come in the arrival of Jesus Christ, but He'll do it in a tremendously thorough way, almost taking us by the hand and stopping periodically to make sure we don't miss the big themes that He is pointing us to. Matthew wants to show us specifically how Jesus' life repeats and fulfills the life of Old Testament Israel. If you want extra points on a, on a Bible quiz, Matthew is preoccupied with recapitulation. That's what he wants to show us, that Jesus recapitulates the life of Old Testament Israel, that he repeats it and fulfills it. And so, Matthew will show us things like Jesus immediately, to use Mark's word, 
going to Egypt as an infant so that he can come back out of Egypt and Hosea can be fulfilled where it says that out of Egypt I have called my son. He'll show us Jesus receiving the law on a mountain, giving the law on a mountain. He'll show us Jesus tempted and tried in a wilderness like Israel again and again. He wants to show us Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel, as the true Israel, as the true Son of God who brings the people of God out through a true and greater exodus into a true and greater kingdom. John's gospel is perhaps the most unique of the four. It's even distinguished. Again, if you want to sort this away for a Bible quiz, we have three synoptic gospels, and then we've got John. John who's distinct, and, and John brings in a lot of material that is absent from the other gospels, and, and likewise the synoptic gospels contain a lot of material that's absent from John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, while John's focuses on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. But unlike Matthew and Mark, John is careful to include detail that intentionally brings his Gentile readers in. Right? While Matthew is careful for his Jewish readers to build the bridges back to the Old Testament for them, to show them the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus, John is careful to stop and explain for his non-Jewish readers the significance of things, like the significance of Jewish customs the significance of Palestinian geography. John clearly expects his gospel to be read by people who have never been in Palestine. John wants all of his readers, regardless of where they come to, to be able to follow along and see that Old Testament Judaism was expecting the arrival of the Messiah and that in Jesus that Messiah has now come. Remember, John gives us his purpose, his thesis statement in John 20, verse 31. He says that he has written this gospel so that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. And that essentially is Luke's purpose as well with the difference that Luke seems more focused on solidifying and expanding what his readers have already heard about Jesus. Right, we just read it, didn't we? These first four verses are, a, are one sentence in Greek, one long sentence that he gives us to explain why he's written what he's written. And he says, verse 3, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's like the other gospel writers. Luke is writing for a particular purpose. He says he has ordered his material for this purpose. It's one of the things that, that troubles some readers of the Gospels, or even seems to give ammunition to the critics of Christianity who want to undermine the integrity of Scriptures, this, this reality that the four Gospels do not unfold in the same way. 
and that they do not contain the same material. And when they do, the same events are often recorded at different times. And it troubles us, right? We tend to think of history in in linear terms. We think of writing history in linear terms. We we learn it even from our earliest days in, in kindergarten or in elementary school. You all had to write it was the first thing you did after summer, after your summer break. You had to write a, what I did in my summer break. And they all read the same. I did this, and then 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 it was time for school again. Linear. It's how we tend to, to present historical material along a chronological line. But, but that's not how first century historians thought. And in fact, if we stand back and think about it for a minute, it's actually not how a lot of history even now is done. If you read biographies, it is not unusual for the biographer to pick up a certain thread in a man's life and follow that for a while only then to go back to an earlier point and follow another path. And as the gospel writers are presenting their material, they do it in a way that fits their purpose. Luke says here that he has written an, an orderly account, but, but not a chronological order. Luke is presenting for us a logical order. The commentator Michael Green puts it this way. He says, for Luke, an orderly account is concerned above all with persuasion. He has ordered the events of his narrative so as to bring out their significance to persuade Theophilus, who is not so much concerned with the issue, did it happen, as with the queries, what happened and what does it all mean? By providing a more complete accounting of Jesus in his significance, Luke hopes to encourage faith. That's the order that he has given to this gospel, not a chronological one, not necessarily a this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, though that is generally the structure of the gospel. But more specifically, Luke has ordered it logically because he wants to persuade his readers of Jesus Christ. He wants to solidify and strengthen their faith. There is, we could say, a a maturity about this gospel. It was likely written about the same time as Matthew and Mark, though maybe just a little later. We think that Matthew and Mark were written mid to late 50s to 60 AD, and and we think that, that Luke was written sometime around 60 AD. John will come much later. But Luke seems to be just a little later than Matthew or Mark, 30 years or so after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension as Christ. But as Luke says here in his opening, what he is writing is not, in contrast to Matthew and Mark, is not a first-hand account. But rather, it is an account that he has written having gathered sources and having collated uh, from the best information available to him. Matthew, Mark, and John have a certain rawness to them. Remember, these are Gospels written by men who witness the things that they write about. 
and who describe the life of Jesus from the invested position of, of being men who knew Jesus and watched Jesus and heard Jesus. They write from the position of, of being men who had received so much from Jesus directly and personally. Matthew, the tax collector, who had been brought up out of the shame of his profession and the vice that came with it. John, the beloved disciple who had been so close to Jesus, who had stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, who had leant on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Mark, in all likelihood getting his material from Peter, who had so deeply and viscerally known what it was both to fail Christ and then to receive restoring grace upon grace. These Gospels are all written by men who write from a position of deep personal investment and who want to guide their readers to behold the glories of the one they loved so much. But looks different. Luke loved Jesus, just like these other men, undoubtedly. Luke now loves Jesus in heaven. But his story's a little different. Luke wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. Notice how in verse 2, he very purposefully distinguishes himself from those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. Luke is a, a later convert, and, and we think a Gentile convert. Eusebius, the ancient church historian, in his ecclesiastical history, writes that Luke was by race an Antiochian and a physician by profession. It seems that Luke has been converted by the missionary journeys of the apostles, perhaps even the journey of Paul. We don't know when Luke was converted. We don't know how he was converted, but we do know that when he was converted, his life changed radically and dramatically. Luke became a close companion with Paul, perhaps even the closest of all of Paul's companions, sticking with him throughout his missionary journeys. Luke writes, of course, a companion volume to his gospel, the Acts of the Apostles, and through that he is constantly referring to what is going on in the in the first person, he talks about, about we as he talks about Paul's activities, placing himself right in the midst of the action. Paul calls him in Colossians 4.14, the beloved physician. And most movingly, I think, in 2 Timothy 4.11, as Paul languishes in his second imprisonment, he, he writes so heartbreakingly about the departure of his companions. Some of them, like Demas, fall in love with this present world. Demas, who has decided that following Jesus really isn't worth the cost anymore, and who has departed from the apostolic band, departed, it would seem, from the church. But others, who have gone away for lawful activities, like Titus, who have gone away in order to pursue ministry. But the upshot of it all is that, that Paul has been left alone in his imprisonment, except for Luke. 
He writes very simply, Luke alone is with me. A constant companion, a a confidant, a counselor, a friend in his time of need, willing to bear with him the reproach of the gospel. And it would seem here that this Gentile convert coming after the ascension in a careful and systematic way has taken the best source material that he could find and he has used it to create a gospel that carefully and purposefully leads his readers to a more sure understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke wants to build his readers up in their faith in Christ. He wants them to be more sure of what they have seen and heard of Jesus Christ. He wants them to see what he has seen. He wants them to hear what he has heard so that with him, his readers might be firmly anchored to the rock of Christ. So that as they experience, as he has, so that as we experience, as he has, the rise of and the falls of the fortunes of life as a disciple of Jesus, that we might be anchored strong and sure and firm. That's Luke's purpose. He wants to strengthen your faith. He wants to solidify your grip on Christ so that unlike Demas, you will not give this up as a bad lot and go back to your former life. Like the other Gospels, Luke has a particular focus. And his focus, his his running theme throughout the Gospel is on salvation. And on the salvation that can be found in Jesus Christ. If, If repetition equals emphasis, which it does, right, another one of our little interpretive principles then the main emphasis of Luke's gospel is the good news that salvation is to be found in Jesus. Luke's two favorite words are preaching the gospel, which is one word in Greek, and salvation. Luke's theme can essentially be summed up in what he writes in chapter 19, verse 10 that the Son of Man came came to seek and to save what was lost. And throughout his gospel, Luke is careful to present both sides of that issue. Luke is thorough in demonstrating to us our need to be saved. So he shows us Jesus' interactions with Jews and with Gentiles, and even with the social outcast Samaritans. He's giving us a conception of a whole world lost in sin and a whole world in need of the gospel. And he also shows us the glorious good news that there is, to use Howard Marshall's phrase, that there is in Jesus a wideness in God's mercy. Not only does Luke demonstrate that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for Jew and Gentile, and even, shockingly, for Samaritans as well, Luke takes us to what would have been considered the fringes of society in his gospel. So he shows us Jesus preaching to the poor and blessing the poor. He shows shepherds, 
who were, who were outcasts. He includes women predominantly in his account. Women who, like children, were wholly undervalued in first century society. Luke is ordering his narrative to show us that the gospel is for all, that all are in need of it, and that the love of God manifest in Jesus Christ is wide enough for all to be included in it. Luke wants to show his readers, regardless of who they are, that in Jesus Christ there is a Savior for you. Regardless of where you have come from, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you have done, Luke wants to drive this point home that the gospel is free and for the taking, and that Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior for any and all who would come to Him in faith. This is the theme, of course, that will continue on throughout Acts, which shows the gospel breaking the boundaries of Jerusalem and going throughout the world, encountering those who are lost in their sins and universally offering to them salvation in Jesus Christ. That's his central theme. That's what he wants his readers to get a, a, a grasp of. That's what he wants them to get a firm grip on. Right, here are early Christians who have heard the gospel message, who have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as Jesus as the long-awaited Savior, who have, who have laid hold of Him by faith. And here is Luke coming to bolster that faith. Here are you, 21st century Christians, who have heard the gospel message, who have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, who have come to see your need for salvation, who have come to lay hold of Jesus as the Savior you need. And Luke is coming to bolster your faith so that in seasons of doubt and despondency, when it gets hard to be a Christian, either because the world hates you and is against you, or I think we could include even when our hearts condemn us. When that voice, that diabolic voice, comes and, and whispers to us and makes us wonder whether Jesus can truly love and save a sinner like me, Luke wants to cultivate in you a reflex that answers that accusation, yes, devil, even for a wretch like me, the whiteness of God's mercy is there. He wants you, in seasons when you wonder if the gospel is truly for the one you love, for your friend, your neighbor, your colleague, your relative who has spent their entire lives in notorious sins. And you wonder if they have perhaps slipped beyond the reach of God's grace. Luke wants you to be sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there is grace for them in Christ even for the worst of sinners on the fringes of society. Luke wants you to see that the gospel of Christ is so wide 
that it includes even them. That in Jesus Christ, there is mercy to be found that is free and for the taking for any and all who would come to it. That's Luke's message. That's his aim. He wants to cultivate a solid confidence in Jesus, a solid confidence in the salvation that is to be found in Jesus. He wants you to be confident in the gospel, and He wants you to confidently proclaim that gospel. Luke wants to cultivate within you a deeper devotion to Christ and a deeper longing to see many come with us and behold the glories of our Savior and cast themselves upon Him. May God bless us as we journey through this gospel. May the Holy Spirit open it to us. May He apply it to our hearts and all for the glory of Christ. Let's pray.